0: Good morning, church. It's good to see you. Uh, Glad to uh, be gathering uh, with you again and to look into God's word uh, together. Um, So um, grateful uh, for this time. Uh, We uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter uh, three, resuming our uh, study here. And uh, we've all come here. We've we've sung about it a little bit already. A couple of the songs referred to our needs, and we've all come here today with varying needs. Uh, Some people here have pressing financial needs. Others have uh, relational needs or emotional needs. All of us really in that category. Uh, Some are coming with uh, some difficult health needs. Uh, Some with um, just a sense that they need to be recognized in some way, appreciated, to be heard, to be loved, or to feel useful. In all of these ways, uh, we come here expressing some sense of need. In today's passage, Acts 3, 1 to 10, a disabled man is brought, as was the custom, as was usual for him, he was brought to the temple to a certain gate to beg. And his greatest need as a disabled man might seem obvious to us, and even, we could say, a secondary need that he might have, a primary but secondary need, would also stand out. Uh, but when they met him, the apostles who were entering the temple on this particular day addressed a need that this man was not even thinking about. To our knowledge, was not even on his radar. And what turned out to be this man's most pressing need is actually our most pressing need as well no matter what our life situation is no matter what needs we think are paramount and need to be met right now his most pressing need as it was addressed by the apostles is our most pressing need that of finding life in jesus christ that's it finding life in jesus christ so let's read the text and we're going to get into it i have A lot to share. I haven't preached here for two weeks, so you can imagine. i got a few things to say. Acts uh, 3, 1 to 10. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. At what had happened to him. Well listen. This is the declaration. If you're willing to make this declaration. I'm going to have four questions for you. Uh, But here's the declaration. I will look to Jesus Christ alone. I will look to Jesus Christ alone. To meet my most pressing need. Okay here's the the question. First one. A question one. Do I even know what my most pressing need is? Now, to be sure, I've already tipped my hand in the introduction, so you already know. And enough of you went to Sunday school when you were a kid, so you know what the Sunday school answer is, correct? My most pressing need is? That's the Sunday school answer. But the reality is that even as Christians, we might acknowledge the Sunday school answer and say that Jesus is our top priority, Jesus is our greatest, most pressing need, but then here's what happens. In the daily living of our lives, we rationalize Jesus out of the top spot. We rationalize him out. Yes, I know that Jesus is my most pressing need, we say, but I do have to feed my family. I do have to have this job. I do have to live in such and such a city. I do have to buy this car. I do have to go on this vacation. My kids expect it I know that Jesus is my most pressing need. I know that He can fulfill everything. I know that He's sufficient. But I really do need to have this person in my life to also fulfill me. And in a practical sense, what we do is we push Jesus off because you know the expression out of sight, out of mind. And Jesus is out of sight to us, He's out of sight. But our kids aren't, and our spouse isn't, and our coworkers aren't, and our neighbors are not. The thing that's right in front of me are the bills that I have to pay, and having friends, and being married, and all of that. That's what I actually see. So, in fact, what we do is we reprioritize, and we say my most pressing need actually is something other than Jesus. And what I'm saying is that our physiological and social and emotional needs tend to jump the queue. Ahead of Jesus. And every human being does this. Now I I get that as human beings. I argue this strongly. Uh, Many do that we have this innate sense of God. We have a divine spark inside of us. So there is a sense that there is a God. And and there is a sense even in that, that. That he ought to have priority in our lives. But. We're also human beings. Subject to our sin nature. And because of that, we're constantly in conflict with things that we know to be true. We are predisposed by our sin nature to push God out and to put ourselves in first position. Everybody okay with that? Everybody understand that that's where we're at? That's the basic understanding of human nature right there. Now that, all of that said... That's the setup. Now look at the first couple of verses. Peter and John, these two apostles, are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. It's the ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, Many of the commentators say there's the busiest time of the day at the temple, around 3 p.m. And this man who was lame from birth was being carried. Presumably his family members, who would have had charge for him, would would take care of him in their home, but they would take him every day to the gate and, and set him there. They laid him da- daily at the gate of the temple that's called beautiful gate to ask alms of those who entered the temple. Now we could have looked at this fact. When you look at a text like this and are studying it, we could have looked at this from the vantage point of Peter and John could have studied it that way. We could have said, well, these apostles, you know, they had such courage to say what they said, to do what they did. They had faith to believe in God. We could have looked at it from that vantage point and kind of tracked with Peter and John through this whole text. We could have certainly, and the best way to always look at this scripture, we could have done it from the point of view of God and seen how in this healing and what God does, that he's advancing his plan and purposes, that he's demonstrating his power, and certainly all of that is true. But instead, I've chosen for us to consider the point of view of this man who's born with a disability, who can't walk, who's dependent on his relatives, He's dependent on the alms that he collects. He's a man who, according to chapter 4, verse 22, because his story continues here. In chapter 4, 22, we find out that he was more than 40 years old. And he's begging to support himself at that age. And verse 3, so he's there at the temple and he's begging. And he sees Peter and John about to go in the temple, verse 3. And he asks what he would ask of any temple pilgrims. Could I have some money if you got something for me? He believes in this moment. Listen now, he believes that his most pressing need is money that he's going to turn into clothing, that he's going to turn into shelter, that he's going to turn into food. What we would say are the most basic needs that a human being would have. Verse four, Peter directs his gaze at him. He hears him asking for money. Peter stares at him. So does John, and then Peter says to, to this man, "Look at us, look at us." Now, most of us, if we're being honest here, if when we're in downtown Barrie and we happen to see someone who's begging, or if you're at like any of the corners around Mapleview and the 400, most of us, be honest, avert our gaze away from the person. True. Avert our gaze. You don't want to lock eyes with a person you're not going to give any money to. So that's what we do. We avert our eyes. We don't give any money and we don't look at them. Now Peter does something really different here. He he actually says, look at me. Look at us. Look, Look at us right in the eyes. Now in this moment, like any person begging on any street corner, if someone says to them, look at me, that person immediately thinks what? They're about to cash in. This is going to be more than a quarter. Do people still carry quarters? Are are those still a thing? This is going to be more than just like a token amount put into the guy's hat. This guy thinks he's going to get something. Something special is going to happen because people don't normally say this. Verse 5. So he fixes his attention on them. And the text tells us expecting to receive something from them. And the something is this great amount of money that, that he believes might even be life-changing to him. And we know this, in fact. We'll see this in the next section. By the way, Peter responds. We know the man is expecting money. Now, here's the thing. His most pressing need, in the man's mind, he thinks, my most pressing need is about to be met. I'm going to get more money than I ever thought I would get. But then as readers, because we've read the whole passage here, we know that he doesn't actually know what he needs. He doesn't know what his most pressing need is. Now, I want to turn this back on, on us at this point, Because you and I are afflicted in the same way. And if I could borrow language from the text. I would say we are just as lame as this man. Just as confused about our real needs. And part of that confusion comes. By something that we have been taught. Outside of the church. And has informed how we perceive our needs. All of us. All of us have been taught Maslow's hierarchy of needs on the board. All of us have seen How many people have seen Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Keep your hands up. How many people have seen this, okay? We all got taught this in school. Keep your hands up, please. I did not tell you to put them down. (laughs) All of us were taught this, and anybody who does not have their hand up right now, these are the people who skipped class or were not paying attention. Okay? You can put your hands down. See, everyone was taught Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This came out, by the way, in 1943. Abraham Maslow believed that we were all seeking, all of us as human beings are seeking to be self-actualized. Self-actualization is the ultimate achievement of being all a person can be. It's like the top level. When I get there, I feel completely fulfilled as a human being. But... Maslow's idea was that you actually have to work up from the bottom in order to get to self-actualize. You have to work through physiological needs, safety needs, love and belonging, esteem. If you don't have any of those fulfilled, there's no possible way you could ever be self-actualized. All of the other felt needs need to be met in the order of this hierarchy. Now, researcher and writer Susan Metis uh, she writes a uh, great article in Christianity Today that we'll link in the, uh, in the sermon notes on hbc.info. Susan Metis says this, uh, The hierarchy of needs theory is not so much scientific as speculative. Abraham Maslow first published his theory without empirical testing. In other words, he didn't run it through the scientific method at all. He didn't actually look at human behavior. He didn't look at hundreds of people over a period of several years who were in different situations. He didn't analyze all the data and then compile it and come up with his hierarchy of needs. He just drew a triangle and made up lists and thought about a thing and then put it out there and everybody went, wow, that's so cool. I'm going to teach this to somebody else. You see? But there was no empirical testing behind it. He tweaked the theory throughout his career, but he never did systematically compare the theory to real people's behavior. Now, at first glance, Christians should be rejecting his conclusions. Can we come back to the, to the pyramid again? Christians should be rejecting this uh, based simply on the fact that the spiritual, notice the spiritual, gets no treatment whatsoever. Oh, I didn't notice that before. Nothing there that covers the spiritual. Now, again, Susan Metis told us that he, he tweaked this throughout his entire career. And by 1970, he had actually tweaked it to include three other levels of need. And he called this now Maslow's motivational model. And among the new ones, above self-actualization, notice there is, what's the word? Transcendence transcendence. And this is a tap, a a tap of the tip of the hat to spirituality. So transcendence, he described as being motivated by values, which transcend beyond the personal self. I'm looking for something outside of myself now. And he puts this at the very top. Then he gave some examples, mystical experiences, And experiences with nature, we might say, oh, look at that mountain. Look at this lake. I just feel so at peace when I'm here. And that would be in transcendence or um, aesthetic and sexual experiences or service to others. I just feel so good when I'm serving other people. The pursuit of science he put here and religious faith he put in this category. And if you want to track down that a little bit more, Saul McLeod, on uh, the website, Simply Psychology has a good analysis of all of that. And so we give, we give Maslow points that by 1970, he had recognized that transcendence spirituality needed to be there in some, uh, in some fashion, but still problematic in that he still saw the whole thing as a hierarchy. That you couldn't get to transcendence if your other needs were not being met. And so a person, for example... If you're following Maslow's hierarchy, a person could not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior if they were hungry, if they were destitute, if they're in poverty, if they're suffering with cancer, if they're terminal. Such a person could never accept Jesus Christ. They could never get to self-actualization or never get to transcendence because they're hungry. And immediately, immediately, I thought about the criminal who was crucified with Jesus. Jesus. And I thought like like on Maslow's hierarchy like none of his lower needs are being met. He's dying. He's not going to be fed, he's not going to be cared for, there's no personal safety. People have rejected him, his family's not around, he's utterly alone and dying. And yet Jesus says to him, "This day you're going to be with me in paradise." Now, to use Maslow's words, in that very moment, despite the fact that none of his other needs are being met, in that very moment, the criminal on the cross is self-actualized and has a transcendent experience with God, a God that he knows he's, he's going to be with in the next few moments. Now, in 2011, there was a study by Lewis Tay and Ed Diner found that having a certain set of needs is not contingent. It's not contingent on meeting other needs. And what they showed, and they did an actual study with science. And what they showed instead is that people feel feel a jumble of higher and lower needs at the same time. How many people really enjoyed that psych lesson? How many people enjoyed it? How many people were super happy it wasn't a history lesson? (laughs) Yeah, I get it. All of this to say there are needs, there are needs, and we have these needs. It's a jumble of needs, but no hierarchy of needs beyond this one. Your Sunday school teacher was right. Jesus Christ is your most pressing need at all times. You need Jesus above all else. You and I both need Jesus. Every single human being on this planet needs Jesus Christ. Whatever else you might think your need is in this very moment, your we're we're most pressing need, it is not. It's Christ. And that leads us nicely into second question. Do I realize that Christ, by his grace, meets all my needs and many of my wants? So Peter says to him, verse six, I have no silver and gold. Okay, this is the point where Peter knows that's what he's thinking, because Peter's saying, I don't have any of the thing that you think I'm gonna give you. The, guy, the guy's actually thinking at this point, if, if we pause, Peter says, I don't have any silver. and go, I got no money for you. The guy's actually thinking in this moment, well, then get out of the way. I have begging to do. You either pony up or you move aside. Don't waste my time. Then Peter says to him, I don't have any money, but what I do have, this is all in verse six, but what I do have, I give to you. Oh, great. That's what the guy's thinking. Oh, great. What are you going to give me? Some advice? Some life advice? You think I should be sitting at a different gate? You think I should see a certain doctor? What's your advice for me? I don't know. Or, or is it just that you have a sandwich in your bag? I'd take a sandwich. If you had a sandwich. So what's he thinking at this point? And Peter says to him, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, He's not invoking his own power. He's not resting on his own faith in any way. He's not not just being a confident guy at this point. He's rooting, I'm talking about Peter, he's rooting everything in the power of the name of Jesus Christ, the one who was raised from death to life. And he says to him, rise up and walk. That's what I have to give to you. Now notice, notice, Peter bypasses the man's most obvious physiological need, the one physiological need that has been met for the last 40 plus years. He bypasses that completely. That's money to meet an even greater need, which is the ability to walk. I mean, that's not the end of it yet. But the ability to walk immediately allows this man to go to work. Immediately means that he doesn't need to beg anymore. Because now he can provide for himself. Perhaps even this man could now be married. Not that that's the ultimate fulfillment, but he could be. Perhaps also he and his wife-to-be could have children. Not that that's the end of all things, but he could. In other words, this man's life can take a completely different track. Less obviously, those are all fairly obvious, but less obviously because he is no longer lame, I'm going to be really careful here, because we have a very different value around all of this in the 21st century than than at the time of the writing of scriptures and in the nation of Israel as things played out. If you were lame in this way, you were considered defective. And as a result of that, you were barred from entering the temple. This man could go no further than the gate that he was sitting at. He couldn't go in and offer his own sacrifices. He couldn't take his own offering. He couldn't go in with all the other pilgrims who were coming at 3 p.m. that afternoon for afternoon prayers. He couldn't go in with them. He had to stay right there because he was lame. Leviticus 21 explains that. 2 Samuel 5, Peter re- or David reiterates it. God meets this man's most pressing need which is to know and worship Jesus Christ. He graciously does that by by bypassing the most obvious need, which is money for food, to heal him physically so that he could actually stand up and enter the temple for the first time in his life. Verse 7, Peter took him by the right hand and, and raised him up. This man had never done this before. Immediately, Luke says his feet and his ankles were made strong. And in this instant, God chooses to work in this miraculous way to the great benefit of this man. Meeting needs that he wasn't even thinking about. In order that his greater, God's greater unseen plan would be advanced. Now this is where, at this point, this is where we often... We often trip up, confusing needs and wants, because our needs are actually relatively few. And quite simple. Adequate food, adequate clothing, and adequate shelter. Paul wrote in First Timothy six, eight, If we have food and clothing with these we'll be content. In fact, the early church had decided that material possessions were secondary to the actual mission. And back in chapter 2, we saw this. They were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. We'll see in several messages from now in in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who had just been appointed as a deacon in the church, a servant in the church to help with some very practical things, he stands up to, to preach in Jerusalem. He's going to preach the kingdom of God. He's going to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's going to proclaim the gospel. And his physical well-being was neglected in order to do that. Because he was martyred for preaching Jesus Christ. They threw stones at him until he was dead. And so every other need on Maslow's hierarchy of needs was considered secondary to the transcendent experience that he had of seeing the glory of God as they were killing him. His only need was to fulfill the mission that God had given to him. And this is where we need to get to as Christians in this consumeristic Self-centered society that we live in as the followers of Jesus Christ, we need to live so differently. We have to get to this place where we understand that absolutely everything I have beyond Jesus is extra. Bonus. A blessing, grace. Every scrap of food we eat, the clothing we wear, the houses we live in, the cars we drive, the friends we have, the family that you're a part of, this church, this city, this country, with all of its freedoms and benefits, the health that he gives to us, all of it a bonus, a gift from the gracious and generous hand of our God. Not one of the things I listed is a need. I don't need to be married. I don't need to have kids. I don't need to have grandkids. I don't need to have the best clothes. I don't need to live in the best house. I don't need to go on vacation. I don't need any of those things. I don't need a new car. I don't need any of that. My real and only need is Jesus. Jesus. And to be fully engaged in the mission that he's given to us in this world. That's heavy, right to there. Bam. Close it in prayer, Todd. I've had enough. Two more questions. Because if you can get there, then, then this next question is necessary. Do I respond to God in light of that? I believe all that. Uh, do I respond to God with unashamed worship for all he's done and is doing for me? Unashamed worship. Well, the man did, verse 8, and leaping up. Peter's lifting him up by the right hand, just carefully. The man's never stood before. So Peter's taking it easy on him, lifting him up. All of a sudden, the guy leaps up. Never done that before. He stood. He began to walk. He entered the temple with them. And as he's entering the temple, he's walking and leaping and praising God. Imagine if this happened in the parking lot every Sunday morning. He says, open your car door and everybody just starts leaping into church. I heard that at the women's gather event on Friday night, they had a dance-off. Maybe we should have dance-offs to the door. I mean, he thought he was coming to the temple to beg for money, for food. He gets physical healing so he could walk. And then he responds by receiving this provision of the greatest need that he actually had. He responds by following Jesus. And he responded in unashamed worship. And his reaction, of course, for a man who had never walked before, his reaction is understandable. For 40 plus years, he had not walked, let alone leapt. If you had never used your legs, suddenly found that you could, would you leap? Walk, run, stand, jump? Wouldn't you do it all? To be leaping into the temple would certainly not be normal and might attract attention, as it would if you did a dance off to the door from the parking lot. But see, he had no shame. His shame, in fact, had been lifted the shame of being carried as a 40-some-year-old man to the gate of the temple, the shame of having to beg, all of that was lifted because Jesus Christ had healed him. Now, the point is not that we respond exactly as he did. Please don't hear that that's the application. But that we would have our own unashamed response to God for all he's done and is doing. In what way do you unashamedly worship Jesus? And remember, when I'm talking about worship, I'm talking about more than just this gathering. It's not just about the the 90 minutes that we're here on a Sunday. In what way, with the entirety of your week, do you unashamedly worship Jesus Christ? How do you worship Him at 10 a.m. on Tuesday morning? How do you worship him on Thursday nights? What does your worship of Christ look like on Saturdays? That's really the question. I appreciate so much uh, the teaching of Nancy Lee DeMoss. Um, her married name's Wolgamuth now, and in her book titled Holiness, uh, she speaks of psychological longings. Or perceived needs. What we're talking about is needs here. And she writes this. The essence of imaging God or being like God or Christ-like. Is to rejoice in God's presence. To love him above all else. And to live for his glory. Not our own. The most basic question of human existence becomes. How can I bring glory to God? Not how will God meet my psychological longings? How will God meet my needs? These differences create very different tugs on our heart. One constantly pulls us outward toward God and the other first pulls us inward toward ourselves. Will it be the worship of God, in other words, and the pursuit of holiness, or will it be increasingly in my life, self-centeredness, a focus on myself? Because when we finally sort this all out, we reevaluate everything. To ask the question, do I need this? Do I need this in my life? Does this advance the mission? Does this help me proclaim the gospel? Does this help me become more holy? Will I look more like Jesus if I do this or have this? Everything in our lives comes under the scrutiny of whether or not it's a need. So responding to God in worship is really about living fully for him, seeking to be holy and set apart for his glory and becoming like Christ and being on mission for him. And the only antidote to our selfish pursuit of having to have our insatiable needs and wants met is to do what Damas said. Rejoice in God's presence. Love him above all else. And live for his glory, not our own. One more question. And this one directs us right to the mission that we first read about in in chapter 1, verse 8. That we're going to be the witnesses of Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So question four. Do I understand that my one life rightly lived for God can impact so many others? It takes faith to believe that whatever is happening to me fits into God's sovereign plan. I'll say that again. It takes faith to believe that whatever is happening to me fits into God's sovereign plan. I struggle on this point all the time in my own prayer life. This hard thing that's coming at me right now. God, is this really part of your plan? How is this fitting in with everything else? From my vantage point, doesn't seem to fit, just too hard, don't want it. Anybody else pray like that? I mean, the challenge with suffering, and by suffering, Let's translate that into the language of this message. Suffering, not having my needs met. The problem with suffering is that we are tempted to become inwardly focused and all we want is to be relieved of our situation. That's what I need, God. I just need you. I don't care if it's your sovereign plan. I just need to be relieved of my situation. In in moments where we have like abundant clarity on what we believe, we may acknowledge Romans 8.28. Yes, I know that for those who love you, all things work together for good. This is all going to work out. When When I'm thinking clearly theologically, I get that. And I understand that it works out not just for my good, but it works out for others' good. And I realize it works out for God's glory. But we're so often quick to say to God, I get it. I get the theology of it. But I'd be in a better place if you would pick someone else for your sovereign plan. It doesn't work that way. The man in this account did not choose his life. God chose it for his own glory. God chose that for 40 years this man would be unable to walk. Unable to care for himself, dependent on others. Unable to make a living or to have a wife or to have children. God ordained that for 40 plus years his loved ones would care for him. For 40 plus years that he would be required to To beg, to provide for his own needs. God chose that this man would be trapped, so to speak, by his circumstances and in this desperate situation. But God had a plan for him that took these four decades to roll out. And when it finally happened on that day, that was like any other day when it started. All the people, verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God and and recognized him as the one. Isn't that the guy? We, We come to the temple every week at this time. He's always there begging. I've been coming to the temple for 20 years, I've been coming for 30 years. He's always been there. Isn't that the guy? Recognize him. He's the one who sits at the beautiful gate of the temple. He's always begging. They're filled with wonder and amazement. At what had happened to him. And this this healing now is not just to the man's benefit. It's not just that his needs get met. We have to see how God is working out something bigger here. Because it now sets up a second opportunity for Peter to preach a message to a large crowd of people. In fact, this healing is now going to set off a series of events that are going to carry us into chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Acts and have repercussions throughout the early stages of the church. Peter's going to preach. A bunch of people are going to get saved. More than 5,000 men are going to be counted as part of the church at the end of all of this. Peter and John are going to be brought before the Sanhedrin and they're going to be questioned. They're going to be, they're going to be threatened by the religious leaders. And it's going to unleash some persecution. And all of it, part of God's plan. Thousands more will give their lives to follow Jesus Christ. And the followers will be pushed out from Jerusalem into Judea into the end of the earth to proclaim the gospel there. All because this one man was healed at 3 p.m. one afternoon. Of course, the man couldn't have known when his relatives were once again carrying him to the gate, when he once again was asking temple goers to give him money, he didn't know that his life and the lives of so many others would be radically altered that day. So it's not like you can have a sense of this. You don't have any idea. Nobody in this room has any idea how their one life, rightly lived for God, can impact so many others. Those of you who work in Harvest Kids and in a one-on-Wednesday nights or, or who help with High Five in the summer, you have no idea the trajectory of the lives of those children. You have no idea how God is going to use them and what they're going to accomplish. And, 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 and they may think, you know, when I was seven years old, I was in this class in Barrie, Ontario at this church, on George Street, and there was this teacher whose name I don't even remember, and they said this to me. It changed my entire life. Small group leaders and coaches, you have no idea. As you shepherd God's people, you're on the ground and in the lives in a way that I'm not. You're praying for and weeping with and rejoicing with. Walking through the the deepest of waters with people. And you have no idea how God is using that. Youth leaders on Tuesday night. Listen, the vast majority of people that will give their lives to Jesus Christ are going to do it before their teenagers uh, or into their teenage lives. And so our youth ministry is so important to us. And youth leaders, if you're coming on Tuesday nights, please do not think you're just checking a service box. Please do not think that it's the cool thing to do to be a youth leader. Please come expecting that God is going to use your very humble efforts, efforts that seem at times to be very unappreciated by the people you're caring for. Rotten teenagers (laughs) who may give their life to Christ, who may be going through a crisis you don't even realize. Who may make a decision to live for Christ when they're 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age that changes everything? Only God knows how all of this is being woven together. Think about your families and your friendships. The greatest need they have is not what you may be thinking it is, as husbands and wives and moms and dads. Think about this the greatest need of your mate, your children, the greatest need of your friends and fellow workers is not your friendship or your acts of service. It's not your abilities or your financial provision. Their greatest need is not even your verbal witness of your faith. What they need most is to see you, see in you a reflection of what God is like and of the transforming power of the gospel, your life can create hunger and thirst for God in others' lives. And it can be a powerful instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit to draw their hearts to Christ, Nancy Lee DeMoss. So make that your determination. Look to Jesus Christ alone to meet your most pressing need. And understand that your one life lived rightly for God can and will impact so many others to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Our God and Father, um, I do pray that having heard this message there would be a a wholesale moving of the hearts of men and women and, and young people in this room to reevaluate and rethink the priorities of our lives, to really consider carefully what our needs actually are. And then for there to be a complete surrender. for us to be like that man moving beyond our lameness to stand, to walk, to leap and then to enter into the temple, to enter into the presence of our God praising, praising you. So Father, do that work. I can't make it happen. Nobody can make it happen even for themselves. We need your Holy Spirit to do that in this place right now. So please, Father, work in each of our hearts, I pray in Christ's name.